You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. You're listening to a sermon from River Before City Church Before we come to the sermon, one thing, just Minnesota. to let you guys know, one of our missionaries is here, Ron Coyman, is standing over here, raise your hand, Ron. Uh, Ron's one of our partners, and he's uh, with us today, and so if you want to say hello to him or hear a little bit more about the work he's doing, feel free to stop over and greet him. As a church, we together exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond. Now, we remind you of that mission statement each week because it is central to who we are as a church and to what we're doing right now together this morning, seeing weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus. And there are two sides to the way that that mission will play itself out, even here as we gather. On the one hand, we acknowledge that our lives can be wearied by the world, at times, and I'll occasionally remind you of where that can come from. And on the other hand, we also believe deeply that those lives are renewed in relationship with Jesus, that renewal is possible. In fact, we have a sure hope that it is. And I was speaking with one of our members just this past week, and she wanted to make sure that people knew that even though weariness does exist in our lives, for those of us who are in Christ, our weariness does not define us. We're not defined by our weariness. We are defined by Christ. Jesus promised a light yoke to those who come to him. He lifts our burdens, and he gives a strong and sure hope in him. And so, on the one hand, we reject a sort of happy, clappy version of Christianity that wants us to deny or ignore the real trials in life. And on the other hand, we also reject a despairing version of Christianity that would have us deny the very real hope that we have in Jesus. In response to our weariness, Jesus invites us to come to him and find rest for our souls. We believe that lives are renewed in relationship with Jesus. And so, in light of that, let me offer you this welcome in the name of Jesus. To all of you here this morning who are weary and in need of rest, to all of you who mourn and need comfort, to all of you who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and need strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, to all who hunger and thirst for righteousness, And to whoever else will come, this church opens wide her doors and offers welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. And now if you would open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 27, that's where we're going to be this morning, Acts 27. We'll start in verse 1, and we're going we're gonna to get all of Paul's kind of ship journey in this all the way until he gets to Rome. So we're going to go through chapter 28, verse 16. We're going to start on page 936 of those pew Bibles. So if you have a, or you're grabbing a pew Bible in the back of the pew in front of you, page 936 there. Now today's text is a bit of an adventure story in some ways. Paul begins in Caesarea, just north of Jerusalem, on the coast there. And he's going to end up all the way in Rome, far away in Italy. Uh, But not, of course, without some challenges along the way. And throughout our passage, what we're going to see is this interaction between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. It was humans who falsely accused Paul 
and sent him to Rome. And it will be humans who make decisions in our passage that will lead to new crises in our story. We will also see, though, the way that God is control of all that is happening all along the way, just as he has been throughout the entire book of Acts. And throughout the story, we'll see then how human initiative and God's providence interact together. And I think for us, isn't this a question that we are so often asking ourselves in the midst of our lives? What's God up to in these events? What's my responsibility in all of this? Well, my hope today is that you will develop a deeper trust in God's sovereignty and also a greater confidence as you execute your human responsibilities in life. And so hopefully you found Acts 27, again, page 936. Before we begin reading, just let me pray for us. So Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that we can open it and read it and hear from you. We thank you for the gift that it is to us, your people, that in it, you reveal your character, your plans, your work in the world. God, we know that grass withers and flowers fade, but your word will last forever. And so now we ask you for help. Would you help us by your spirit? Would you open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things that we find in your word? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Isaac Asimov is credited with having said that there is an art to science and a science to art. The two are not enemies, but different aspects of the whole. And in his book, The Roving Mind, he argues that we should not think of scientists as only rational and calculating, nor should we think of the artist as only emotional and using their intuition. In this way, all good science is imaginative and rational, and all Good artists are both rational as well as imaginative. And we then use this phrase, we apply it to all different skills in life, all sorts of things, like climbing a tree. There's some science and art to that activity. We apply it to things like learning to play jazz or becoming a good photographer. Like so many skills in life, there's a science and an art to them, a logic and an imagination. And here's why I think that's important for us today. Because I think learning to trust in God's sovereignty in this world will be a bit like that. It has a certain logic to it and a certain imagination. There's an art and a science to this. At times rational, and other times it becomes even intuitive. Here's my hope for us this morning. This is the primary message of the sermon, that today we would learn to trust in God's sovereignty while taking seriously our human responsibility. And we're going to go through it in this way. We're, we're going to work our way through the narrative all at once. And as I trace the narrative, I am indebted to Tony Morita's commentary on this passage. And I'm borrowing his nine different alls that kind of break the narrative up for us. And then after we have it in our minds, then we're going to try and apply it to us as 21st century Christians today. And so let's trace the narrative together, beginning in chapter 27, <clears throat> verses 1 through 5. The first all is all aboard. They're about to get on a ship, and so we'll see. Verse 1, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. And putting out to sea, from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, 
because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. And so here we, we kind of get the beginning of this journey. Paul finally sets out from Caesarea, and on this first ship, they make it to Myra, which is along the southern coast of what is modern-day Turkey. And this particular ship is a small ship. It can only travel along the coast, or as we'll see this phrase several times, under the lee of Cyprus. And under the lee simply means that you travel close enough to an island or a body of water to help protect you from the heavy winds of the open sea. And here embedded really in this initial travel account, we see this record of Christian friendship that shows really up all all throughout Acts. Paul here, he is not alone. If you caught the pronoun that's being used, Luke is saying we over and over. Luke is with him on this ship and on this journey. And in addition to Luke, Aristarchus is also with Paul. And beyond these two travel companions in verse 3, we see that he gets to see some of his friends in Sidon. And it can be easy to miss the deep friendships that Paul had formed throughout his ministry, but they show up over and over. You could do an entire study through Acts just focusing on the Christian friendship that exists among this early church. I can only imagine that these were a great source of encouragement and strength for Paul in the middle of this present trial. And even though Paul is surrounded by other prisoners and soldiers and sailors, this would have been a very lonely journey if not for these friends who are with him. We even get mention of this man named Julius, who's the centurion. It's worth kind of noting him now. He shows a great kindness to Paul as he lets him see his friends inside. And and what we'll see throughout this narrative is there's this growing appreciation and respect for Paul as they go on this journey. Well, they change ships, and so the next all is all change. Verses 6 through 12 says, There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. So they had continued to travel west. They're on their way toward Italy, but it was slow going as they sailed to Crete. The wind was making their journey difficult, and so they worked their way around the southern part of Crete under the protection of Crete to get to what was known as Fair Havens. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So their journey had been more difficult than they anticipated. And there's this notation from Luke that the fast was over. The fast is another word for the Day of Atonement. It had already passed. And and he wants us to know, if, if we kind of know a calendar year, that that means it's getting late in the fall. And when it's late in the fall and approaching winter, travel by sea becomes very dangerous. Very few people even attempted to travel by sea in the middle of winter. So Paul's warning them not to attempt the travel at all. However, despite its name, Fair Havens is apparently not a harbor suitable for winter. I don't know why. We're not certain. Maybe they just didn't have the right amenities for that many people in winter. But 
Paul says stay put, they say let's go, and so they decide to attempt to go around Crete to Phoenix, which is uh, another harbor on the western coast more suitable for winter. And Here in Minnesota, we're familiar with people who want to spend their winters in Phoenix, so I don't know if we can blame them. But in this case, it does not work out so well, and so we'll continue. The next all is all over, beginning in verse 13. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. So initially, things are going well. However, the weather is about to change. Verse 14, but soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the sea of a small island called Coda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. So a northeaster comes over the mountainous part of Crete, strikes down upon them, and this is a nasty storm, so much so that they cannot fight it, and so they give way to it, and they're driven a long way off course. Now, they were able to get some shelter under, on the lee of a small little island, and so in verse 17, they attempt to do some things to reinforce the ship. They bring the lifeboat in, they put some extra supports under the hull, they lowered the ankles, anchors into the water to try and slow their progress because they were afraid that they would be forced into the notoriously shallow and dangerous waters off Sirtis. And so they're doing some things, these kind of life-saving measures that they're taking. And as we continue, it says, since we were violently tossed or storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So the crew begins to throw everything overboard. They're trying to lighten the ship so they float higher on the water in an attempt to withstand this storm. Everyone is beginning to feel hopeless. They haven't seen the sun or the stars for days. They're under constant pressure from the storm. Now, as the reader, we, we're clued into some things that everyone on the ship might not be. We, we know that this cannot be the end. God has made a promise to Paul. He will make it to Rome. But they had lost all hope. And I think in this way, here we see some of the difficulty we have with the providence of God at times. It can be easy to forget that God is in charge, that he has planned all things for good, and that he will be faithful to execute his sovereign will on behalf of his people and his purposes, especially when we're at our lowest, we can forget this, when we feel storm-tossed and helpless. But the story continues. The next all is all listen beginning in verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not sent sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Now, this statement reads a lot like an I told you so, and I'm sure we've all had moments where we might want to say I told you so, but as I read some commentators this week, they said that it's it's maybe more likely Paul is trying to establish some credibility to remind them that, hey, I, I had some wisdom the last time you should listen to me this time. This is less of an I told you so, more of an appeal that they should listen to him now, just as they should have then. And so he continues in verse 22, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. 
And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Take heart, Paul encourages them. God has promised that no one will die. We're all going to make it. Even though we will lose the ship, we're all going to live. Here's a good example of how um, God's sovereignty intersects with human responsibility. In verse 24, God's repeating this promise that Jesus had given to Paul back in chapter 23. Paul will testify before Caesar, but there's human responsibility in this as well. Paul must stand up and make this appeal to everyone, and they need to listen to him this time, and fortunately, they do. We'll continue on. The next all is all stay. When the 14th night had come, as we were driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in this ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. For 14 nights, they had been fighting for their lives. For fear that they would now run into rocks as they are perceiving that they're getting close to land, they anchored themselves so they could wait for daylight so they could see what they're doing. But Paul points out that these sailors are going to try to escape, and the respect that Julius has for Paul, we see it continuing to grow here, because he and his soldiers cut off the ship's only small boat that they had. Now, Paul was probably motivated by two things in particular. On the one hand, when morning came, they were going to need those sailors and their skills to help them navigate toward shore. And second, he's also, I think, motivated by the vision that he had from God, assuming that all must get safely to land together. If they're going to get there, they'll all get there together. But before that comes, the next all is they all eat. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Paul here, we see that he's not only deeply deeply theological and spiritually mature, but he's also in many ways just a wise and practical leader. If you've ever been in an intense and demanding situation, perhaps in the midst of a crisis, or maybe just a really busy day, sometimes you'll forget to eat. I have had that happen to me before, but not 14 days in a row. And so here they are. They must be exhausted. They're in need of nourishment. And Paul knows that a tired and malnourished man won't be of much use to them getting to the shore. And so he himself leads the way, and he's going to take some food, and the others follow. He lifts the food, and he gives thanks to God for that food, and then they eat. Now, this is not a holy meal like the Lord's Supper, but I do think, nonetheless, it is a holy moment as they spend time together sharing a meal, nourishing their bodies, with Paul giving witness to the God whom he serves through his brief prayer. And what we see then, the next all, is that all survive. 
Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. The centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. The next morning, they see land. They see that it's there, not far away, and so they're going to try and run aground on the beach. But before they get to the beach, they hit a reef in the water earlier than expected, and now the waves are crashing against the back of the boat, and they're tearing the boat apart. And so they are going to jump in and swim. But before they do that, the soldiers want to kill their prisoners. Even in a shipwreck, they feared that if these prisoners get free, it will be their lives on the line. And so, but again, we see Julius and his growing respect and appreciation for Paul. He doesn't want Paul to be executed, so he says, no, we're not going to execute the prisoners. And in this way, Paul becomes a vessel of salvation for others, both in his presence on the ship, keeping all the passengers from being destroyed by that storm, and also now, very in particular, his presence as a prisoner kept the soldiers from killing all the other prisoners. And so, they jump in. Some could swim, others are just holding on to planks and floating ashore. In the end, all 276 of the passengers on that ship are saved. And then we see that they all warm. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 28, after we were brought safely through, when, or we then learned that the island was called Malta, the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place, there were, or were I, sorry, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. And so now we get this little scene on this island. After they got safely to land, their bodies are warmed by a fire, and their spirits are warmed by the kindness of the welcome from these native people. Paul, he's helping to gather wood. He's not above helping to gather wood, and as he's doing that, he's bitten by a snake. And the native people thought that this must be because he had done something evil and that justice had come to do its bidding. However, it was actually, I think, God's kindness to the natives themselves, experienced in the pain of Paul, to make it clear that Paul was God's messenger. 
There were probably cultural and linguistic barriers for communication between Paul and these natives, and so God was kind enough to make it clear that Paul was a man worth listening to. Paul eventually heals the father of the island chief, and all the sick on that island come to be healed as well. Now, Luke does not record all that happened throughout the several months that they spent on Malta during that winter, but I can only assume that Paul took the opportunity to share the gospel with them. And he was given an audience from them because of the miracles that God had worked through Paul. And after that winter was over, as they're about to board another ship, the people of Malta show one last kindness to Paul and the crew. They load up the ship with all the supplies that they need. And and we might even then be reminded of the fact they threw over all the wheat and all the supplies that they had before they crash-landed. And now we see that God provides for them. Here, God's sovereign hand is at work through these island people. And then finally, the last all, all arrive. Verse 11 through 16. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. And you you might wonder, why does Luke include that little note about the twin gods as a figurehead? Well, the twin gods were Castor and Pollux, and they were a mark of protection for seamen. And I think Luke's cluing us all in. We're we're invited to this kind of inside joke that these twin gods are not actually the ones that are going to protect this ship. We know that it is, in fact, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the sovereign of all creation, the savior of Paul, who's going to protect this ship on its journey toward Rome. Going on, it says, putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. and after one day a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Petoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. Now, they're in the southern part of Italy now, in the region of Rome, and they rest for seven days. Again, we see this pervasive nature of Christian friendship. Even here, there are other Christians who invite them in. They welcome Paul and his companions, likely providing lodging and food, as well as a warm gospel welcome to them all. And going on, it says, the brothers there, these are the brothers in Rome, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apius and the Three Taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. The brothers in Rome, they hear about Paul arriving in Italy, and so they greet him along the way. When Paul sees them, he's filled with gratitude and encouragement, and it says that he thanked God and took courage. Paul has finally arrived in Rome. It has taken over two and a half years from when he was first arrested in Jerusalem, and Jesus visited him in that prison and promised that he would make it. Now, I can only imagine throughout those long and grueling years, there were times where Paul maybe came to doubt that promise. In the face of murder attempts, trials, unjust Roman officials, storms, and shipwrecks, Paul must have needed to remind himself of Jesus' promise over and over and over to continue to trust that it was true. And now here he is, greeted by the church in Rome, ready to give witness to Caesar. Now, this is more than just a compelling adventure story in the life of Paul. Here we see the interplay between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, and we see the way that God remained faithful to his promises. And so, let me draw out a couple principles for us and how this would apply to us today. The first is that you can trust in the providence of God. 
I've been using this phrase even this morning, God's sovereignty, a lot up to this point, and occasionally I've switched to using the word providence. Now, these two words are related, but they're not the same, so let me define them for you quickly. Let me explain why I'm calling you to trust in God's providence today. So sovereignty is a word that means complete authority, control, and power. And we actually use this word a lot today in like international affairs. You've probably heard this word a lot with regard to the war in Ukraine. We object to Russia invading Ukraine because Ukraine is a sovereign nation, meaning that it has authority, control, and power within its own borders. And Russia objects to the West intervening because Russia appeals to its own sovereignty as a nation. National sovereignty is important in world politics. And when we talk about God's sovereignty, though, it means that God is the supreme authority of the entire world. He has complete authority and control and power over all of creation. And providence is a related word. I think John Piper's short little definition is helpful in this. And he says that providence is purposeful sovereignty. I like this definition. I think it's helpful. It means that God uses his sovereignty for a purpose. He is using his sovereignty to redeem a world gone wrong, and he's doing so through the death and the resurrection of his son. We see God's providence show up several times in our passage. Let me share with you one example. When the angel comes to speak to Paul in verse 24 of chapter 27, he says, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. God wants Paul to stand before Caesar. And God has the ability to see it through. God has granted the lives of all who sail with Paul. In God's sovereignty, these lives are God's to grant. Now, as modern people, we sometimes have a hard time with this. We don't always like talking about God's sovereignty because we like to be the ones in control of our own lives. And because we we try to explain away suffering by suggesting that God is not always in control. However, I think explaining away suffering by arguing that God is not actually sovereign is not a comfort in the end. It is, on the other hand, a comfort to come to trust in the providence of God, even when we don't understand why the events of the world occur the way that they do. Here would be an example. When a child begins to trust his father, he does not always understand why his dad does what he does. But when a child has come to trust his dad as a loving and a gracious father, then they learn to trust his decisions, even though they don't always understand why their dad limits their freedoms or requires their obedience or executes discipline. The sort of trust that a son has for his loving father might be expressed even in the words that my youngest son shared with me recently. He said, Dad, if you were Luke Skywalker, you could defeat Darth Maul. He doesn't need to know that Luke never actually meets Darth Maul in the midst of, Sky- or in the midst of Star Wars. And even though his, his trust is imperfectly conceived, and even though my sovereignty is severely limited, Jude's trust for me is a picture of our trust for God's providence. Now, it might be imperfectly understood sometimes. We don't always understand what he's doing, but we can give it to God nonetheless. And we won't always understand why God chooses to work the way that he does. In the story of Paul, for example, if God wanted Paul in Rome, and I asked this question this week, then why is the storm there at all? Why does the storm even happen? If God is sovereign enough to save Paul from the storm, why doesn't God just stop the storm from happening? 
And here's where I think the science and art that we talked about earlier come into play. We can try to come up with all the rational explanations for why God allows the storm. Maybe God wanted to show that he could get Paul to Rome even in the midst of a storm. Or maybe God wanted Paul to end up on Malta so that this tribal people could hear about the good news of the gospel. Now, we can try to come up with all the rational explanations that we want. And there are certain principles that we can use to understand the why. But in the end, we often will not know why God's providence works itself out the way that it does. However, we can learn to trust it and see its beauty like an artist before a canvas. It can become intuitive to us to trust God even when we don't understand And I've had to work through this myself. I've had to learn how to trust in God's providence throughout our building crisis this past year. I shared with you in the fall that I, why God more time of revitalization through. Now I know all the statistics, how long it takes for a new senior pastor to see the fruit of revitalization, that God is our church family calling people to join us in the work. Fall with my wife. And I said, if only God had given us more time And Megan said something back to me that's just been lodged in my mind. And in a way that only a spouse can, Megan looked at me and said, Jeremy, do you not think that God knows what he's doing? See, I'm learning to trust in the providence of God as well. And we have good reason to keep learning to trust in God's providence. And whether it is in the departure of our current building or in the process of finding a new building or whether you find yourself in a profession that you don't want or confronted with a health crisis that you didn't ask for, we may not know why God is doing what he is doing. But we can learn to trust God's providence even when we're in the middle of one of life's storms. And this brings me to the second side of this application. You can bear the weight of human responsibility. God's sovereignty can sometimes be discounted because that would suggest that we have no role to play. But that's not the picture that we get in the Bible. That's not what we see. God is certainly in control, but we are responsible for our role. We are not passive observers, but we are active participants in this work. As Paul was sitting on the ship in the middle of this storm, God sent him a vision to tell him that he and everyone on the ship were going to arrive safely. Paul could have received that promise... And then with his buddies, Luke and Aristarchus, they could have sat down on a couple barrels. Maybe he gave them the encouragement as well and just hung on for dear life. But that's not what he does. He stands up in front of everyone, feels responsible to be an active participant in God fulfilling what he has already providentially promised. And he gives them this word of encouragement and hope. This reminded me of a parable I heard on an episode of The West Wing once. In this episode, a priest tells about a man that lived by a river. This man heard on a radio report about an impending flood and that all the residents should evacuate. He said to himself, though, I am religious, I pray, God loves me, God will save me. Well, as the waters rose, eventually a man in a rowboat came by and offered this man some help. He said to himself, I am religious, I pray, God loves me, God will save me. Well, the waters continued to rise, and this man crawls onto his roof, and eventually a helicopter comes by to save this man. And he yells back to the helicopter, I'm religious, I pray, God loves me, God will save me. Well, that man drowned. And when he asked God why he didn't save him, God replied back, I gave you a news report, a man in a rowboat, and even a helicopter. Why are you dead? Now, this parable illustrates a foolish man's understanding of God's providence. We are not passive observers. We are active participants in this work. 
There are many ways that we can participate in God's kingdom coming to bear on this earth. One of them is prayer. In Luke 11, Jesus is instructing his disciples on how to pray. And he tells them to pray persistently through this short parable. And then he ends by making this comparison between a human father and God. And he says that even human fathers who are at times evil know how to give good gifts to their children. If their child asks for a fish, they are not going to give them a serpent. If their child asks for an egg, they're not going to give them a scorpion. How much more will our heavenly father give us what we need? I was talking with a friend of mine recently about this particular passage. He's applying for a job, and he and I keep praying that God would give him this job. I think that's part of human responsibility. We are praying persistently. From our perspective, it seems like the right job for him. But we also know that God is wiser than we are. And so we also trust that if he doesn't get the job, God knows better than we do. As a good father, God will not give him a serpent when he asks for a fish. Now, this is helpful to remember. He may not give you the fish that you wanted, but you can be assured that he's not going to give you a serpent. Prayer is not flippant or trivial. It is our humble communication with a loving father. And whether it is prayer for a job or for the salvation of your child, for comfort in your sorrow or strength in your weakness, God delights to answer the prayers of his people. And whether or not he answers the way that you want, you can trust in his wisdom and his providence to take on the response to continue to pray. See, God is on a mission to redeem a broken world. And through his own providential decree, that reconciliation was purchased already by the blood of Jesus so that the nations would be glad in their worship of God, whether it is the citizens in Rome, the islanders on first century Malta, or 21st century Papua New Guinea, or your neighbor. Before we can talk about our human responsibility in the kingdom coming to bear on earth, we must talk about the way that God providentially dealt with the consequence of sin in the world. See, Jesus did not die for his own idolatry and sin. He died as a consequence for the idolatry and sin that you and I are responsible for. If we're going to talk about human responsibility, we need to acknowledge that part of it as well. At the cross, we see the intermingling of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Jesus died on the cross for sin. He was put on that cross because of the sinful motivations of the very people he came to save. However, this did not happen outside of God's providence. God sent his son to die, the Bible says. It was God's will and design to pay for humanity's sin through the death of his son. When we start to talk about human responsibility, we need to give thanks that our responsibility for dealing with our sin was already completed on our behalf. Our work is not to redeem ourselves. That was done by Jesus. Our responsibility is to live in light of God's sovereign will to save us through his son. As people who are now part of an eternal kingdom, we are motivated to bring that kingdom to bear on our present world through love, word, and deed. And so it is our responsibility to live as kingdom people as God works out his sovereign plan to redeem this world. There's an art and a science to how this works out in our lives. At times it is conscious, other times it's intuitive. Sometimes it's rational and other times imaginative. But we are always learning to trust in God's sovereignty while taking seriously our human responsibility. And now as we turn to the table, we will give thanks to God. We'll, we'll give Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. 
If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.